You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams with the Superlative Podcast. We have a special format today. We're, it's going to be a news show. And joining me is the Blog to Watch news, news editor, uh, Sean Lorenzen. Hey, Sean. Hi, everybody. Uh, glad to be on the show. Uh, I am Sean Lorenzen, the news editor for a Blog to Watch. Uh, if you read the site, you might have seen my byline around. But uh, excited to be here and talk about some of the biggest news stories of the past several weeks in the watch industry. Um, before that, we're just sort of going to have a little recap of what's sort of going on right now. It is nearly the end of October 2020. Uh, we're like less than two weeks away from the U.S. presidential election. So the world is entirely uh, tense <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of uncertainty and it's kind of a weird time. But from a news perspective, we have been overloaded with uh, information and announcements of new watches. Isn't that right, Sean? Oh, yeah. It's it's a fascinating time to be covering the watch industry. Uh, obviously, with trade shows sort of going the way of the dinosaur uh, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, every brand's release schedule has become uh, a little less structured, a little more experimental. Uh, companies are trying things avant-garde, in terms of... If you will. Oh, I'm sorry? I said avant-garde, if you will. Absolutely. I think avant-garde might be a good word for it. Um, it's very experimental this year, and uh, it keeps us on our toes. And It's like interpretive it's- dance. We know that they're trying to dance. We have no idea what they're trying to say most of the time or what they're listening to. It's half the fun of it. Yeah. So one of the things that was big for me in the last week was the co-hosting of Virtual Microlux, which a blog to watch uh, produced. Uh, for the LA Microlux show, which was supposed to be, you know, a uh, an, an in-person event, it pretty much all other watch events in, two, in 2020 had to go virtual. Yet, I'll tell you this, Sean, you you would have loved to see these pictures. That maybe I can share them with you. Konstantin Chaikin over in Moscow, uh, the watchmaker and the president of sort of this prestigious group of independent watchmakers. Oh yeah, he sent me, he forwarded me this press release of the post-show recap of the, I think it was called the Moscow Watch Expo. I didn't even know there was such a thing. Apparently it's like over 20 years old. I had no idea. Have you heard of the Mo- the Moscow Watch Expo? No, I haven't. But now I kind of want to go to Moscow. I know, right? And so a lot of it was these like endemic Russian brands. So I saw that like Orient, which has always done very well in that part of the world, uh, had a big booth there. But a lot of it was like, like there was a new brand called Slava, and of course, you have Konstantin Chaikin and you have, oh, I don't know, maybe Raketa. Slava's no new brand. Slava's been around since the 40s or 50s. No, I know, I know. But like a revi- revived one. Like oh, they so they Russian they've... like actor as an ambassador, <laughs> like all this stuff. <laughs> so there's these I pictures. And, you know, there's masks and it's like, it's sparse there. Don't get me wrong. There's not a lot of people. I don't think a lot of people could go. But apparently they were able to have an in-person event. But um that's in Moscow, and they like their watches so much, and I, I don't know. So that was one thing, but I did the virtual events. So you you saw that. Did you watch any part of it? I don't know what it was like on the other side. Um, did you have a chance to see any of the uh, virtual microlux? I watched quite a bit of it. Uh, my coverage of it wasn't quite as intensive, obviously, as you being part of it. 
Uh, I think it was fascinating. It's an interesting look at what might be the future of this industry. Uh, obviously, How would you explain that to people that may not know what a virtual event is or didn't see any of it? So in a lot of ways, what we've seen over the past week or so with virtual microlux isn't necessarily a replacement to the big bore trade shows uh, like Basel or SAHH, what's now Watches Wonders, uh, but more of a consumer-directed event uh, aimed at buyers, aimed at retailers, rather than aiming at uh, the media and large-scale sales. Uh, what that means is it's a lot more personal. It's a lot more focused. Um, there's a little bit more maybe pageantry involved, although pageantry is a tough thing to do when everybody's stuck inside. Uh, but honestly, I found it I found it very exciting and uh, a great potential indicator for what might be the future of this industry when things get back to normal. I, I don't think every trade show needs to be uh, flying everyone in from every corner of the world. This could be a great solution for, for brands with a smaller marketing budget. What do you think the consumers they will get out of it that they wouldn't be able to get out of maybe reading just an article or going to a brand's website? I think it's the personal touch. It's so much of being able to see an actual conversation between someone like you, other industry experts, and high-level brand representatives where so much of the watch industry, especially to the casual enthusiast, is a faceless business. Uh, you don't necessarily interact with anyone beyond your local retailer, and that person, like is not, has very little interaction with the brands they're actually selling. So to see someone who's directly involved in the making of these timepieces that we all love so much uh, puts a human face on. It, it really does add a different aspect to a hobby that can be a very isolating experience in some ways. Now, so here's the thing that concerns me, and this is another trend I've seen that I guess in a sense I'm protected because it is like on my territory, but also I don't think they do a very good job of it. A lot of brands, rather than say, hey, let's work with media companies like a blog to watch that, you know, have a lot of experience in this, they try to replicate what we do with their own in-house people and think they'll get the same results. So for example, um, we'll do a watch review video. And the, they said, oh, well, we can just call our video a watch review and it's us doing it. And we'll just replicate, you know, some human being on camera handling and talking about a watch. And so that's what a lot of them are doing. <laughs> <laughs> and these aren't reviews, and they kind of are wonky. And it's, you know, a shame to me because they actually believe, or maybe I, I don't know what they're thinking, but they're doing this, thinking this is a replacement for an authentic third-party um, review. And similarly, I think with these shows, the brands are going to be like, why do we need to work with others? You know, we do the interview, we chat, we, we curate it. I mean, with, with virtual microlux, we didn't really have a lot of options with the brands. These are mostly brands that were signed up to be part of the, the microlux event in LA. So it's not like we were able to sort of curate the brands from scratch. But the questions you ask them, the time you give them, the way you feature them, you have to have a third-party media company do it. You, do the, you have the brands do it. It just becomes like this self-congratulatory, I'll use your word, pageant, <laughs> as opposed to anything with an actual editorial angle to it that I think people really need because it's a vicarious experience, right? The idea is I'm not able to see this watch or stand in front of the presentation myself. So I need to have someone who represents me doing it. Instead, I will live vicariously through them 
uh, still communicating an arm's length distance from the brand which wants my money. You remove that third party, you remove that important vicarious experience and it just becomes the, the brand saying, I know you like editorial content, so I'm going to make my marketing material look like editorial content. And, oh, yeah, you didn't really need the editorial to begin with. And then we get to the point where we were prior to watch magazines ever existing, um, sort of, you know, in any real form in the 1990s, a little bit the 80s in Europe and stuff like that, where watch consumers had nothing but marketing material. And I realized the brands would love to go back to that. So I, I, I'm sorry to be protected. Go, yeah, I'm sorry to go on <laughs> sort of a long monologue about it, but it's sort of this existential thing where we prove that something works well and then they say, oh, thanks for showing us that people care about it. We're going to do it our own way and make it 100% about us because that's how we roll. And yeah, uh, <laughs> it's, 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 to, it's weird to narrow that, Yeah, to narrow that monologue down, I think the two most important services that a publication like a blog watch, like we have, can provide are transparency and perspective. And frankly, any sort of branded content that is presenting itself as objective editorial is not being transparent. They're being fundamentally at least a little bit deceptive in that kind of coverage. And secondly, with perspective, we don't always have to like everything we talk about. Um, as journalists, as independent media, we are not always beholden to the whims of the company. Hey, I started all this because I like talking about stuff I don't like. Yeah. And let's be frank, a whole bunch of the internet is built on people enjoying reading about other people not liking things that they themselves well, don't so like. So here's how I explain it. There's, there's no like radar to find good. The only way you find good is a process of elimination by removing the bad. So good things end up being the things that you complain about the least, right? This is how you determine what is a good thing. So writing critically helps you, again, learn how to, you know, wipe away the bad so that you only see the good. But it comes from this ongoing process of criticism and analyzing something, be like, how could it be better? How could it be better? How could it be better? So people who only speak in the positive are evading the core question, which allows watch collectors to select to begin with. No, I completely agree. Um, the person who's willing to go to the plate and call out a company, whether it's a watch company or anything else in the world, uh, for producing a product that frankly is not good in some aspect, in my mind, loves watches more than someone who is just going to say whatever is the most positive thing that pops in their head. There is obviously a double-edged sword to that. Uh, I used to work as an auto journalist long before I worked in watches. Uh, and my time at Motor Trend, the editorial edict was, we like all cars. We just like some cars more than others. And that can so be- So what is that? Own... Every car is five stars, but some are like six stars? Not necessarily. <laughs> it's that you, it's sort of the inverse of what you were talking about, where you need to, to find the thing that's least bad. It was finding the thing that's most good, uh, where you would try and find at least a nugget of good and even the worst car. You know, even if the thing's absolutely terrible, it could be, well, the interior is nice, or, you know, it's got a decent transmission. You'd find something to talk All about. All that new car smell. Exactly. Uh, however negligible that thing might be, uh, writing a purely negative review can be exhausting for the writer and for the reader, and especially for an advertiser. I'm going to tell you uh, something. 
and again, this 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 is the whole thing. We should talk about this in another show. But I went from writing articles essentially in isolation. I started a blog to watch. I was living in San Francisco. There's no watch industry in San Francisco. I didn't really know anyone at the time. And maybe like two to three years ago, I started meeting people. I had a major slap in the face when I started meeting people who I was, I don't want to say um, talking negatively about them, but regularly and snarkily calling into question their decisions and and explaining how a lot of their decisions and products, you know, could could be improved. And these people were like unbelievably offended by some of the things I said, even though it was probably off fair and I had no, I was not being mean spirited, but being an actual member of the watch community has changed the way I've had to speak about a lot of things, but I'm still known, at least this is what people tell me for being probably the most um, outspoken of the journalist community, which I find kind of sad because I don't know how I became the, like the moral like compass on like outspokenness in media. Like I, you know, I'm, I'm an, I'm a natural diplomat. I'm a lawyer. I don't really have any desire to hurt anyone. Yeah, no, it's uh, somebody has to be the most critical. And frankly, you've been doing this for just about the longest uh, out of anyone in this space. You have more perspective than just about anyone in this space. And uh, you're willing to call it like it is. It's one of the things I really respect about our team as opposed to our distinguished competition. Yeah, I mean, the team has taken the sort of a blog to watch concept of saying, you know, calling like it is and really speaking for consumers. And that's, that's really a unifying thing that we all share. We all believe in that. We all pursue that. And that allows us to have this really effective high bar for our content. Okay. So Sean, why don't you bring up some of the biggest news items? We talked about virtual microlux. We had a discussion about that, but bring us some of the biggest news items, especially products um, that uh, are are noteworthy and we want to talk about. Yeah. Like we mentioned before, um, obviously it's a big news week for the world in general, but it's also been a very big news week uh, in luxury watchmaking. There's been some fascinating stuff coming out in the past several weeks. Uh, maybe the biggest buzz of the past several weeks came from Omega with the Speedmaster Silver Snoopy Award 50th anniversary. Uh, this is the third time Omega has produced a Omega Speedmaster centered around the Silver Snoopy Award, which for those who don't know, it can be very confusing. Uh, NASA in the 1960s and into the 1970s uh, used the Peanuts characters as part of a uh, an awards program uh, for NASA astronauts and personnel in, in order pay. to reward safe behavior. In lieu of pay. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a strange connection. It's not at all a logical one to someone who doesn't know. But for example, the Silver Snoopy Award, which is the award that Omega still proudly wears 50 years later, uh, is rewarded for safety in procedure. And in addition to those guys every- are awesome, by the way, the men oh, and women yeah. that receive those, you want them to be on your team. You want them to be on, on your, your team in game night. So much fun. Oh, yeah. No, if there's one person you want on your team and the chips are down, it's someone who won an award from NASA for getting a spaceship home safe. But no, that, that uh, means they re- they remember procedure and like everything to them is a series of steps. Exactly. And so the particular Silver Snoopy Award that this commemorates uh, was for Apollo 13. Uh, it's not just a Tom Hanks movie. The whole story behind Apollo 13 was this was a th- supposed to be the third manned moon landing for the United States in the year 1970. Uh, 
the entire team on Apollo 13 won the Silver Snoopy Award after the Apollo 13 lunar module malfunctioned. Uh, I believe there was an oxygen leak inside the vehicle uh, and it was blown off course. They actually orbited around the dark side of the moon. And for a long time, I believe they still are the people who were the furthest from Earth in all of history and then used the moon's gravity to slingshot back to Earth. Uh, but in order to do that, uh, the Omega Speedmaster that was the standard flight equipment uh, for Apollo astronauts uh, was used to time a 14-second engine burn that saved the ship and saved all the crew aboard. That famous 14-second burn. Yep. It's probably the single most important use of a chronograph in human history. We don't know and that. We don't know that. We don't know that, but it's up there. It's up there. And Omega has now celebrated its 50th anniversary of receiving the Silver Snoopy Award from NASA. Uh, it's a silver dial, uh, sterling silver with blued accents, uh, applied blued indices, which is very unusual for a speedy, blued hands. Uh, the prominent uh, Silver Snoopy emblem on the nine o'clock register, along with which some dials. embossed. Oh yeah, it's embossed in silver. It's a, it's a very beautiful effect. Uh, but maybe the biggest selling point of the timepiece comes around back. Uh, the case back features an animation uh, for the first 14 seconds after the chronograph is engaged. A Snoopy figure in a little spaceship will fly around this uh, representation of the moon and then dip behind it. So, Sean, when you're, when you're describing this, what I'm thinking is that, you know, these watches are meant to be passed down to generations and be timeless and things of that nature. And I don't know, like a few hundred years from now, when someone finds one of these and they're like, this is pretty well made and these were considered luxury materials at the time, they're going to wonder who was this, this flying dog deity that people worshipped and, and what was his religion like and what type of, you know, sacrifices did the people make in his name? Like, you know, <laughs> you, put, you put this much sort of, um, again, I'll use your word again, pageantry around this this, you know, like Sunday Times cartoon character that sort of entered America's pop culture because it was unbelievably safe and clearly anti-communist, um, you know, and, and somehow it's like made its way in the luxury world. Like it's kind of like this weird, like freakish thing that just sort of happened. And if you if you just look at this watch completely in isolation, it's ten thousand dollars. It's it's, you know, obviously a lot of detail. I mean, again, the little animation on the back, I mean. I never thought I would see a Speedmaster, which is supposed to be like this kind of like no-nonsense tool watch with like literally an automaton on the back, which is a little, you know, a little spaceship moving around. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's something you'd expect uh, from like Jacques Rose or something. Yeah, like this is so left field. And this isn't the first time that Omega's done stuff like this. And Omega's in a little bit of a weird phase. But I just, I I, I would not know how to explain this to anyone who hasn't been involved in like watch collecting for a decade, you go to like a, a bar, like anyone can do this anymore. And you're just like, even someone that likes watches, like, Oh, tell me the story of that. And you're like, do you have 14 hours? I mean, yeah. I mean, to be fair, I the rabbit hole. about five and a half minutes explaining the bare bones backstory behind why Snoopy is on the Speedmaster. So you're not wrong. It's, it's like, how much deeper is Omega going to go? Like, you know, I mean, they, they, they aren't, 
my, you know, I, I think it's a fair criticism of them to say that you're not really inventing a lot of new designs. You really they are iterative, not uh, yeah. It's it's very much an evolution, not revolution period for Omega. But like at some point, someone needed to be like, you know what? We could use the watch called the Speedmaster, and we're going to do it. And now years later, it's a thing. But why can't there be a new Speedmaster for today? There's so much stuff going on today, and, and Omega has some amazingly modern movements, and they make a really fine product. But it's like sometimes they're stuck in this like endless sort of, you know, game where they're circulating around the same musical chairs again and again and again. And it's like, I get all that, but to start to come up with some new stuff. That oh, way, it doesn't I, just have to get weirder and weirder and weirder. I completely agree with you. Um, I mean, I am a self-professed Omega geek uh, and I do collect speedies, but I don't collect professionals. Uh, so we could have a whole other discussion about times just where Omega did try that. Uh, and it was called the Mark series, Mark II through the Mark V, and then the Teutonic. And generally, yeah, collectors hated them. Ago. Exactly, because people hated the Teutonic so much that it killed the whole program. There's a Frankly, lot of I designers today design. that I'm sure could do a better job than the Teutonic. Okay, I'm just saying, like, it's worth a shot to try again. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I agree with you. I certainly would love to see a modern interpretation of what the Speedmaster would look like if it was designed from the ground up. But they'll be today. like, should we make a new Teutonic? And like, no, don't. No. Just make something new. No, make make what the Teutonic was in 1982 today. You know, make something that is completely groundbreaking using modern design language and creating a truly utilitarian sports watch with an Omega Spirit for 2020. Let's close up the Snoopy discussion by saying this. I think that this is such a fun watch, but for me, the Snoopy edition, it, it doesn't take away value, but it doesn't really add any. Like you could take Snoopy out and just make it like a little astronaut character, and the watch would be just as appealing. So I think it's nice, but I think I'm hung up on it. It's, it doesn't seem to really leverage the whole Snoopy um, theme or franchise in any satisfying way. I, I would agree, uh, but I also would agree with a caveat that it's not necessarily trying to leverage Charles Schultz and the Peanuts so much it is trying to leverage a relatively obscure internal award that NASA gives to its own personnel. I get it, but if you look at this, nothing other than the little presence of Snoopy here has anything to do with it being a Snoopy watch. Because again, part of the fervor is that some of the Snoopy watches for Omega are going for a lot. Mm -hmm. And so this sort of feels like Hey, we already designed this. You think you could sort of just put Snoopy in as well? Because we've been had demand for a return to Snoopy, and I guess we could throw it in there. You know what I mean? Sort of like it was like a marketing afterthought. Like, oh my God, we forgot to make a Snoopy watch. What do we have coming out soon? Boom, that one. Shove them in there. I'd agree with you up to the case back. The case back is such a such a dynamic part of the that. The little design. ship could just be a normal ship. It doesn't have to have Snoopy in there. Nothing else there is Snoopy-ish. Uh, fair. And honestly, I, I do like the look of a white on blue or a blue sure, on white lovely. panda. Yeah, it's very nice. It's a yeah, colorway that's The only underused. other connection is the fact that it's a silver Snoopy and it's a sterling silver dial. That's really it. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, moving on. Cool okay. watch, but again, not above a certain level of discussion. So... Uh, going to sort of the other end of the spectrum, going from a watch that is all uh, design focused to a watch that is literally just a movement. 
uh, for now, which is the new Oris Caliber 400 movement. We got the Aquas coming out soon. I think by the time the show comes out, it's not going to be like a secret. Yeah, probably by the time this comes out, the Aquas will have dropped embargo. Uh, so it is phasing in through Oris's lines. They're starting with the Aquas. I'd be willing to bet it shows up in other series, the Big Crown and things like that sooner rather than later. So this is Oris going after the Tudor market, right? This is what Oris is trying to compete with. Honestly, I think this is Tudor overshooting the or, uh, Oris overshooting the Tudor market by a sizable margin. Uh, the specifications on the Caliber 400 are very, very impressive. Uh, off the top of the bat, you've got 120 hours power reserve, a 28.8 beat rate. Was that five days? Five days of power reserve at a high beat rate. You're not slowing the watch down to 21,600. So it's four hertz. This is four hertz beat rate. I don't know. It was called that high high beat. Uh, They did in the 60s. I would still consider it a higher beat rate than a than a 21,000 or an 18,000. History. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Beyond that, the other major selling points here: you have a watch that is well within COSE chronometer standards, but they have not chosen to certify it. Uh, They internally claim it's Minus three plus five a day. Uh, on top of that, Meh. it's no, okay. <laughs> yeah. The big ones are massive magnetic resistance and a ten-year service interval and a ten-year warranty. I mean, look, most of the time your watches don't need to be you know serviced more often than that. And I think Oris appreciates at this point people who are buying their watches, especially something like this, are not wearing it every single day. So unless you're wearing a watch every single day. Every 10 years is about what you'll actually need to, to, to go through to service it. Yeah, and, and frankly, one thing that doesn't come up often with luxury watch ownership, other than in the sense of resale, is cost of ownership. You know, it's not like a car where you have to refuel it every couple of days and change the oil every couple of months. But there is a cost of ownership. There is still that servicing interval that if you want the thing to keep running forever, you really do need to respect uh, and so having this significant do you have jump. a watch graveyard? Uh, I actually do, unfortunately. I've had a couple of uh, a couple of Valjoux 7750s crap out on me over the years. Uh, granted, they Just were all... Give me another great product idea for the Ablato Watch Tour. All right. Oh, uh, dead movements? <laughs> no, no, like a way of taking your dead watches and turning them into some type of display art. Oh, yeah. Um, there's some guy on Instagram that does that. With uh, with movement pieces. No, no, I'm just mm. seeing the whole watch. Like imagine, I guess, oh. a whole other discussion. But I've always had this idea of a small plastic mount, and you and you sort of like tile them on a wall, so a wall becomes this just sort of like giant mass of watches in their little plastic cases. And one of the challenges was, is this actually going to where you store live watches? It wouldn't be very safe. But if you start to populate this with mostly dead watches, then it just becomes art, and you basically have watches all over your walls. Yeah, you could build it like a mosaic. Uh, one thing I can say is that it would be fantastically ineffective from a cost perspective. Why? You're looking at many thousands of dollars to cover a very small <laughs> square of wall space. Well, but I'm saying with cool. dead watches. You, that, I'm saying it's your graveyard, so you build it up oh, over yeah. time. Uh, okay. Oh, wow. So, so you never a service a watch ever because that's the point is it's not worth it. It's like, it's like when you spend like $2,000 on a car. Like, you know it has a lifespan, right? Mm-hmm. Like the $2,000 car doesn't last more than a while. You drive it into the ground, you never repair it. And then when it's dead, you get another one and, and you send it to the car graveyard 
it doesn't have a lot of aesthetic appeal afterwards, at least with a watch. Because again, it's not like it's gonna, if the movement doesn't work, it looks any different. True, true. So it's just cool art on the wall. And people go, like, oh, wow, how, how badass are you for having a, a wall full of watches? And you'd be like, well, they're not working. I guess yeah. know, it's still, it's, you're, you just don't care as much about people like walking off with it. Like, and you can tell everyone, oh, those are all dead. And yeah. then you can hide a few in there that are actually working. I'm just saying, I want the wall decoration of watches to be a thing. Anyways. I think that's a real power move. But back to the Caliber 400, uh, with specifications like that, five-day reserve, 10-year service interval, what do you think this does to Oris's position in the market? Because traditionally, they're in a very competitive space. So you know who I think of? And again, it's a totally different brand. But Christopher Ward, a few years ago, came out with the SH-21. They had this, their own facility, and they hired this watch designer. And it was also had five days of power reserve. And I don't think it had the silicon in there. But... You know, they were just like, oh, wow, this is going to be our thing. People are going to take it seriously. People are going to buy our movements from us and we're going to be the next Etta. They were just like so, you know, like just pumped about it. And I don't think it really worked out the way they wanted. So, yes, having a, a good movement like this, if you understand movements, is like, wow, that's really great. But it doesn't really come down to that because at the end of the day, most consumers are just not going to have that different of an experience from like an Etta 2024 to something like this. And yes, you might be the person that will really notice the extra days of power reserve. And that is nice. But oftentimes, these movements come with costs that are at least 1000 to 2000 to 3000 or way more in price than the, the EDA or the mass-produced equivalent. So I still am not convinced that for most consumers, it's worth it given the extra cost. And given the fact that we all have a bunch of watches in our collection, I don't think I've ever worn anything for more than two days in a row anyways. No, especially right now in quarantine where I'm always right next to my watch box. I think I've probably changed three or four times a day. Yeah, so it's like, I love this stuff, but very few actual watch lovers will live an existence where this type of functionality is going to be like, you know what? That's totally worth it. I'm going to sell my other Oris Aquas and buy this one because that extra three days of power reserve is going to make or break for me. Unless there's an independent aesthetic reason, like some cool case material, beautiful dial, unless that exists... You can't just pop in a new engine and expect watches to sell. Yeah, it's it's not like a car. You don't see a seat of your pants performance benefit from a new movement. Uh, so yeah, you know they're going to have the same experience with a watch that looks the same. Uh, and frankly, for a lot of buyers, that is what they're looking for. They're looking for something that looks nice. Uh, and an Eta-powered watch generally will look nice and tell the time reasonably well. Yeah, so again, I think it's fantastic and it makes a strong brand, which is Oris, look even stronger. It's got, you know, um, not industry leading, but I'm sure for the prices the watches will be, you'll be like, that's good. You know, you have to look at a matrix and be like, okay, well, the top performer costs this much and the least performer costs this much and the Oris is right here. And, you know, if you sort of analyze the watch in, in that sort of context of a matrix, I'm sure Oris will look very, very good and a good value. But ultimately, again, it's brand desirability, which sells the watches. Um, it is uh, the attractiveness of the timepieces. And it's, you know, really how competitive the prices are. I'm not saying Oris doesn't win in a lot of these areas, but a lot of brands have extremely high branding. I mean, like Audemars Piguet, I, I don't know that their products are that amazing, but they've done so much in sort of pop culture. They're one of the few watches that is discussed in pop culture like no one's rapping yeah. about oris at this point not that it's not worth it but what i'm saying is brand desirability in today's market 
goes way further than whether or not you have one or more days of power reserve. No, I completely agree with that. And that, you know, comes down to the nature of buyers. It comes down to the nature of the market. Uh, but it does make an interesting point that perhaps, again, to bring in an automotive term here, uh, the Caliber 400 uh, could be looked at as more of a halo product than as an actual sales device. Uh, something product? to Explain that. So, okay. So a halo car, well, uh, I know for those that aren't in this context. car enthusiasts, uh, essentially, like, for example, the Ford GT. Ford loses money on every single GT they sell, but the fact that they have a car that can go well over 200 miles an hour and looks like the GT does sells more fusions and it sells more escapes. You know, and at the end of the day, the, the company their does better. I, just, I don't know if I'd call this their GT. They have some truly exotic stuff on the high end that's probably more their GT, but it is a Halo product on a smaller level. It's maybe their, you know, I, I don't think the it's boss sexy enough to someone. Look, if you understand what it is you want it, the Halo product is sexy to someone who's never even considering buying that. The guy that wants the Fusion, like, it's not actually feasibly like a, a Ford GT customer, right? Th this is, mm -hmm. look, they're debuting in the Aquas, which is probably their most popular collection. The other in-house made movements, the one with the linear power reserve. I mean, again, this is not Oris's first in-house. So they don't make it themselves. It's their design and their suppliers make it. It's not that big of a deal in terms of the distinction. But the bottom line is this isn't the first time they've done this, and they've done it at way more expensive price points in way less mainstream models that are more like dressy. This is, this is for their mainstream, popular, volume-selling watches. And, and when, those, when those other movements, like I think the 110 or whatever they call it, came out a while ago, I said you know, this isn't really going to make that much of a difference until it goes into something like an Aquas. And now we're starting to finally see that where this type of proprietary technology. So in a sense, Oris had been leading up to this moment for several years now. I guess I'm just not that surprised because I knew it was coming. Yeah, and that's fair. It is, it's a time where a lot of brands are upgrading their standard three-hand movements. It's just sort of a generational cycle. Uh, we're seeing this from Tudor. We're seeing this a little bit from Omega. Tag Heuer is going through a huge round of this right now with the Heuer 02. Uh, it, it's just sort of movement upgrade time. It's 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 actually also very much related to some of the business realities in Switzerland related to getting finished movements, which is difficult now and unreliable. And so what brands are doing is they found sort of this interesting workaround. Uh, let's say you couldn't buy watch movements from Edda. You had to go to someone else that had complete movements. Now, brands have a different strategy around this. And I think it's very, very interesting. The strategy is essentially this. When you can't buy movements, maybe you can make them. Even if you don't have the machines in-house, there's always a supplier to make the wheels, the bridges, the screws. If it's uh -huh. your design, any number of suppliers can make rotors for you. Right? It's that's, still your design. That's fair. It's not a very complex component. Yeah. As so, long as you've got the blueprints. There's a couple of parts that they're reliant on uh, companies like Nivarox, and there's a couple of alternatives like in, in the regulation system that you just, suppliers can't make. Like hairsprings, forget about it. It's very difficult to make. Yeah. But pretty much everything else, as long as you can get a few key components, can be made by any number of other suppliers. And so what Oris and many others have done is they protected themselves by having a design that if one supplier goes away, they can still get made by someone else. And that's really, really important because they were ent are entirely reliant on like one company in the past. That is very interesting. 
it could be sort of a tectonic shift in the industry. Uh, speaking of shifts in the industry, obviously we're still living through a vintage diver revival. Uh, we have for several years, and it's we will forever. Sean. Oh yeah, we will always be living through the late 1960s dive revival. Half of the watch industry will always be represented by vintage divers. But one of the vintage divers that has not been represented in a very long time and is, is represented again is Aquastar. What a boring name. <laughs> it says it is what it says on the tin. They are stars of the aqua. Uh, they were a uh, a completely dive watch only brand uh, in the 60s and into the 70s. Uh, they're sort of in that same space with Squale. Uh, where they were a supplier of components and cases to several other brands as well, uh, and developed a lot of close relationships with dive shops and professional, not necessarily commercial divers in the same way like Comex and Rolex was, but a lot of uh, professional sports divers uh, used Aquastar back in the day. Who looks into these watches? Because here's the thing. Some of these are at a very good price. This one is, is not... It's expensive, and I'm sure it has good quality. But, like, it's not particularly pretty. Like, it's you're basically celebrating, like, an exotic, like, an extinct species. Like, when there was this boom and there was all these watch brands, like, this was an experiment. It didn't really work. So it normally died because it wasn't a good idea. But now we're going to bring it back. Why? Because it failed then, and we don't think it'll fail now. Like, it's just such a weird thing. Like, who's the target demographic for this? Well, I, I think you kind of gave part of the reasoning behind it in your answer. Uh, to, to me, the whole idea behind it is that we're living through a nostalgia boom, for better or worse. Uh, we have been for quite a while, and that train's still a-running. So maybe you don't own the license to go build a vintage Seamaster 300 or a Millsub or, you know, something. You don't have the big guns in your arsenal. But you get the rights to Aquastar. That'll make you some money. I guess. I, I don't know. I'd love to see some type of actual analysis when it comes to whether or not you make more money with sort of like a new a new brand name or coming up with some, you know, historic name and just reviving. I, I'd love to know. I think there's a strong argument to be made on both sides. Neither is particularly easy to do. Oh, certainly. It's a tough business to break into. There's I mean, a look, thousand are, Kickstarter brands that'll tell you that. I'm I'm obsessed with symmetry. So the, the asymmetry in the dials like doesn't do it for me. It's kind of Frankenstein-y, right? And so was the original though. It's a it's a very faithful recreation. I bet it is. I'm just saying it's like I don't like some things are better left dead. <laughs> I mean look, Oh, going all pet cemetery for Halloween time, are we? Three thousand five hundred and ninety dollars. That's a lot of money for like, I think it's limited. I'm sure the case is gorgeous. Da, 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 da. Yeah, it's the finishing is quite star. nice. And and I need to, again, I'm I'm bringing up some criticism here. Again, you, the people who own the rights to Aquastar don't own the rights to the most popular uh, vintage diver designs. Obviously, those are with bigger and more prestigious brands. Uh, but I do genuinely like the watch. Uh, there are a lot of divers, there are a lot of vintage divers, and there are a lot of dive chronographs in the current market. There aren't too many vintage dive chronographs in the current market. Uh, Bulova has one that's pretty cool. There's a handful of others from Oris, but this is sort of the only really fastidiously correct, very faithful recreation of an industry that was really just starting. I mean, diver chronographs 
have always been a weird segment, but they were an extremely weird segment in the 60s. Uh, this was uncharted territory. And, and with waterproofing... I, mean, I don't think diving was very safe back then either. It still isn't for certain things, but waterproofing technology has come so far in the past 60 years. And the fact that brands at that time with relatively simple materials and you know rubber and synthetics especially the o-rings and other seals were nowhere near as good as we have today but they were still able to make not just a you know a 200 meter watch but a chronograph which is just about the worst thing you can do for water resistance is interesting from a history of technology standpoint okay nothing else. so let's Back up a second here. The chronograph itself, it's a Lejeune Pere mechanism, which are pretty decent. So basically the same type of thing I think you'd find in like a lot of the Graham chronograph watches. Yes. So these are these are decent movements. And I'm looking here and I'm like, I could be missing it. I can't actually see where it lists. Maybe it's here on this picture. Okay, so the water is in the 200 meters. That's not terrible. But... We don't know whether or not you can use the chronograph underwater. And you just brought up something really important because most chronographs that are also dive watches are not designed for water resistance if you operate the chronograph pushers underwater. There are a handful that have ever been made. Uh, There was one Really small number. Really small number. About 20 years ago from Tag Heuer. Omega. uh, That nobody bought. Not Omega. Uh, Breitling. Breitling with the the magnets and and the super quartz ones. Yeah, it's... Does Omega it, have one? I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure if Omega ever made one, but I know that the Tag Aqua Racer that they did was was one of the most complex designs that Tag Heuer ever did. And because it's an Aqua Racer, nobody cared. But it is an incredible I technical think, I think challenge. IWC probably had one. I feel like there's. Been... I believe they did. I believe they had a, a version of their diver that did. So it's like almost like 1% of the diver's chronographs can actually be used underwater, like some tiny number like that. Now, the thing with that, it's sort of a mental calculation that you have to do is you start the chronograph right before you jump in and then you have the dive bezel freed up to time a second thing. It's sort of like having a, a Rattrapante on land, except with the dive bezel. Okay, I get that. But the thing is, your bezel gives you 60 minutes, and these things mostly give you 30. So you're all of a sudden out there. And it just seems like, you know, there's other ways of going about it. I, I, it, just, it just seems like an, a, a quirky, old-style solution that we've really improved upon today. You know, it's, it's sort of like, like I said, it's an extinct thing in the evolutionary chain. Like, you know, like... There's certain things that are old and have lasted a long time because they're effective. You know, like a shark. Sharks mm-hmm. are super old species. Or a crocodile. Made, yeah, made very effective a long time ago. Like, this was alive for like a few years. Like, this is like an evolutionary dead end. Like, and I'm not saying that in a negative way. I'm just saying like, this isn't like this great thing from the past needs to be reintroduced. I'm like, I'm not saying it was ever great to begin with. This whole conversation is getting a little bit Jurassic Park, but I, I see what you're getting at. It is a um, dinosaur. It is a dinosaur, but if you want to get looser with it, so is almost every mechanical watch. Amber. I'd love to see one of these things in person. I'm sure it's prettier if I ever actually saw it. I just, I've seen so much of this stuff where people like say like, you know what would be great? A no-name vintage dive watch brand. We're three to $4,000. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 
the weirder looking, the better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like there's like 10 of these brands now. And like they have their, people seem to love them. It's the same person yeah. that likes that, the Tudor, was it PO one or something like that? The PO one, it, the PO one is going to be, and this is the hill I will die on, but the PO one is going to be a cult classic within five years. Okay, cult is right. So there's a small number of people that love it, and we acknowledge it doesn't have a mainstream appeal. Yeah, mostly because it's Tudor by way of Seiko. Uh, and I mean that is no slight to Seiko, but many people who are Tudor buyers don't want to crossbreed. Okay, so that's Aquastar. Pre-order price is $2,790. Um, how big are these things? That's the last thing we'll, we'll talk about. That is a great question. We don't know. Uh, we, I'm sure the original 40 and a half millimeters wide by 14.8 millimeters thick. Um, so that's reasonably sized for a diver chronograph. Just, there's so much stuff that has the same case. You know, the dial is distinctive. I guess this chronograph. I just, I don't know. It's, I feel like, you know, Zodiac could do this just as well for like a frac- like, like a third of the price. That's totally fair. In fact, I'd love to see that with the Seawolf aesthetic. And now um, we're going to see that from Zodiac really soon. Okay, moving on. Yes, we have another chronograph. Um, one, of the, one of the biggest segments of the past few years, uh, anyone who knows the watch industry will tell you, is the very confusingly named Integrated Bracelet Stainless Steel Sports Watch Segment, which is a segment of the oh, segment come on, of the segment. So elegantly expressed. You're right. Oh, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a segment with no name, and if it has no name, I, I think that we're miscategorizing it. I think, yeah, you know, I think it's, it is. I think it's men's jewelry bracelet that tells the time. It is. It's one of those where you know it when you see it. Uh, there's no jewelry good bracelet, name for it. Which is what Gerald Gentry was trying to do. He's like, I like bracelets. It'd be so great if it was also a watch, so you don't have to wear a watch and a yeah. bracelet. Boom. And he made several fantastic bracelets over his career. But one of the ones that Genta did not make, uh, but was recently introduced and has been a very hot topic lately, uh, is the Chopard Alpine Eagle. Uh, they've recently introduced the Alpine Eagle XL Chrono, bringing in a chronograph to this design. How much bigger uh, is it? I believe it is a 45 millimeter. One moment. So we got some hands on it. Like that is a, that's a hefty case right there. Yeah, it's it's sort of Royal Oak offshore size. millimeters wide, 13.15 millimeters thick. You know what? It, it's um, 44 millimeter, yes. It's big, you know, it's got, it's got, it's pretty broad. It probably, you know, it probably wears smaller than a Big Bang, but it's about the same size as a Big Bang. Yeah, it's, it's a beefy watch. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but there's still, even as there has it's been this big paradigm bang. shift. But when you hear Alpine Eagle, do you not want to hear like an eagle screech after every time you hear it? I feel like every there needs to be a sound effect. Time. Every single time. Chopard Alpine Eagle and this sort of like high mountain screech. You can hear a little reverberations through the canyons and like there's some snow falling somewhere. Oh, yeah, exactly. If they could do that, it'd be worth every penny. It paints a beautiful mental picture. Uh, and there's a whole other discussion to be had about uh, watch names that paint pictures. Uh, I think the Alpine Eagle does every that fantastic reference number from Patek Philippe. Uh, I, I, in my mind, it paints the picture of one of those um, old timey library cards that would go in a book. Really, oh, yes. really attractive stuff. The one that always gets it for me, though, is the Doxa sh- Sub Shark Hunter. Uh, I will stand by that being the coolest name for any watch ever. Is there actually a vehicle that hunts sharks? Uh, I would assume it's anyone with a spear gun underwater. 
who can get up behind a shark. Right, but it says sub in the name, so it's a device, right? So are you well, a Well, it's a, a timepiece meant for hunter? hunting sharks, I suppose. Okay. Does it, I mean, then it should have this crazy strap that is shark-proof. Is it a shark-proof strap? Uh, they came on metal bracelets. Okay, well, there you go. Yeah. I would not want to hunt sharks. That sounds unbelievably terrifying. I'd rather. No, I, I also love day. sharks. I, I am. They do not want to conserve you at all. <laughs> <laughs> they are free to have that opinion. They have the opinion that you're delicious. I am delicious. Thank you. Well, <laughs> sharks agree with you on many things. Um, okay, so going back to the Alpine Eagle, which is the original part of the conversation. Oh yes. Uh, what movement does this actually have? It is a. It is a show it a bit Paul Newman in the subdials just saying. Uh, there is a little bit of that. We're going to be more. like, we, had, we were homaged by the greats. Exactly. There's, there's a little bit of everything in there. It's about three millimeters larger than the Alpine Eagle. The, than the, the three-hand, three hand, yes. I it thought was a, a great size. I, I actually think this will still be a good size. Again, it is, it's basically like a grown-up Big Bang. Because the Big Bang was always supposed to be very urban, very sporty. This is like... You know, you've, you've, you've really made it now. You don't ever have to go in the street again, but you still want to wear like, exactly. a cool design You watch. still want a big integrated bracelet. You're in carpeted places constantly. You don't even know what concrete's like anymore. Exactly. So the movement inside the Alpine Eagle XL Chrono is the Chopard 03.05C, which is in-house uh, automatic chronograph movement, COSC chronometer certified with a vertical clutch, column wheel, flyback, and a unidirectional gearing system. Okay, so let me ask you this. Now, Chopard has various levels of prestige, and there's sort of the Milamiglia Classic Racing, which is um, yeah. an entry point. Um, and then at some point you have the LUC, and then you have Ferdinand Berthude, which is you know crazy, crazy high end. Yes. What I've not understood is exactly where the Alpine Eagle is positioned there, right? Because it seems to be closer to LUC, especially when it comes to the finishing of the case. But the movement is about the top end for the racing stuff. So yeah. Why would this not have an LUC movement? I, I, or none of them do. None, n- neither the chronograph or the three hand. I would assume LUC it's down the cost. Its own, its own metal watch? Yeah. I think it's just to sort of separate those lanes. Obviously, LUC is traditionally dressier, it's a lot more of a conservative design. Uh, and keeping this with. Which is still a manufactured automatic flyback chronograph. Okay, okay. There haven't been that many LUC watches on bracelets. They had some nice ones. But if you look back at some of their history, before Guy Beauvais, who is at Tag Heuer now, um, revamped that collection, they had some crazy sporty stuff, including all those divers. Oh, fair enough. But in the current lineup, at least, you know, this is still, this movement is no slouch. Uh, and it's one of the things that's very interesting about the Chopard brand. Uh, it's not the first brand that most people think of when they think of movement making expertise, uh, but they are extremely competent on several different levels uh, in, in terms of market placements. Uh, they're able to make, uh, you know, a, a world-class movement with Ferdinand Bertude and some other very, very high end. Uh, they did a Mila Milia earlier this week that was a six-figure timepiece uh, with a stop-start turbion, which uh-huh. is pretty spectacular stuff. But then they can also do something to a $10,000 price point. I, look, I always think Chopard has been an unappreciated member of sort of the watch community. You know, I think the only Chopard I have, I would have more, they're not cheap, 
is um, a quartz one. So I have the quartz version of the uh, Monaco Historique. They had one that has the same movement as the Breitling, so it's like the it's like the super quartz, but it's in like oh, a yes. dress watch. And you know, I always thought that was a great thing. I got you know I got a good deal on it years ago. I don't I think the battery's been dead for a long time, but you know it's it really has yet to have its sort of time with the collectors, and it will have its moment. And for yeah, now, there's there. still a lot of really good deals to be had. To be honest. No, it is. It's a sort of a dark horse that will earn more respect with collectors as time goes on. They've done some really fascinating stuff within the past 10 years that once pe- once those things aren't made anymore and people look back on them, there will be investor to, buzz around To a them. small degree, they've been their own worst enemy because they've spent all of their marketing emphasis on women's stuff and celebrity stuff and, you know, you're not, you're not, I've never seen them actually actively promote any of their men's watches in any real way. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, they do tend to focus more on their jeweler side of the business. And Probably to makes be them fair, more money, to be honest. Yeah. They also make some truly stunning jewelry. They We're do. not in the jewelry business, but it's beautiful stuff. If I could afford a show part engagement ring, you know. It's like some serious if I was Disney getting princess stuff. Oh yeah, it's it's just shockingly pretty. I remember uh, I was at Chopard several years ago, and there was a watch, and it was funny because it was like I think the price was like exactly a hundred thousand dollars. It was a women's watch. It was like it was just an automatic, but it had like a lot of diamonds and stuff all over it. Oh, one of those haute jewelry pieces. No, it wasn't that crazy actually. Like it was surprisingly like it was surprisingly expensive. But you know that type of thing. That's that's a really at least for a while it was a really big breadwinner because you know people would buy those. Um, ultra wealthy people buy them as gifts or for themselves. And, you know, they were very exclusive. They're amazing, but they, they, they didn't care so much about the price for them. 50,000 or $100,000 watch didn't make so much of a difference. And, and companies like Chopard could benefit from that lack of being so you know price sensitive. These days, things are very, very different, but there was sort of this bounty period to make a lot of money from the rich for, for a long time. That does make sense. There's that level of disposable income that we all aspire to. Let's go on to the last topic. Oh, yeah. Speaking of disposable income, people with disposable income have been looking into buying a lot more uh, case designs from exotic materials. We've seen a real explosion over the past few years. You just mean watch collectors, right? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Uh, But case designs have really evolved past the traditional stainless steel and even titanium uh, into some very exotic spaces. We've seen far more uh, experimental designs with carbon, both with traditional woven carbon fiber, carbon composites, forged carbon. Uh, there was a recent release from Girard Perigo, which used what they call carbon glass, which is part carbon and part fiberglass. On top of that, we've seen an absolute explosion of uh, proprietary ceramics made from all sorts of different materials. And and on top of that, you have sapphire cases. So the question really becomes, with so many new and exotic materials that really are in some ways cutting edge material science, there's very advanced metallurgy going going into these, there's very advanced polymer sciences. It's not easy to make a lot of these. But at what point does it start to confuse the consumer? Confuse in what way exactly? Well, for example, there are probably conservatively about six different kinds of carbon that you can use in a watch case nowadays. And all of them are radically different structurally. 
Well, making it worse is you have more or less the same materials given different names by different brands. So they try to yes, everyone has their own trade name. Bright, brightly, bright light, and you know, uh, Luminox has like car, you know, Carbonox and things like that. Just it gets a lot of these are the exact same thing. Some of these materials are more exotic than others. Some are better than others. I think that what people like is the sort of fashionability today. People like lightweight things. It's just, it's becoming more and more important, especially as we walk around a lot more. People just don't want as many metal bracelets. I just, I see a lot of people wanting lightweight stuff. And they love organic things. We are surrounded by artificial stuff. And certain materials by accident look organic. So a wood grain is organic, but Mm -hmm. a carbon fiber weave isn't organic, but looks organic. And that's enough for our eyes to be happy. And we look at like a brushed or polished finish on metal. It looks great when we are surrounded by nature. It's like, oh, we see a lot of green things. Look at our watch. It reminds us of this sort of human-made world. Exactly. When we live in a world which is constantly reminding us of human-made stuff, we want to see something more organic elsewhere to calm us down like on our wrists, which is one of the things that I believe is responsible for this popularity in these organic surface treatments, organic-looking materials and things like that. So I think that it's a search for these pleasing textures that consumers like, but they don't know they like, right? Like, I don't think consumers like, what watch can I buy that has a great organic looking texture? Okay, great. You know, like, that's not what they're thinking. Yeah. They're just romance. They don't know why. They're not thinking about it like I'm thinking about it. Yeah, that seems like a, it, it wouldn't necessarily be the take that I would come out with at first. Uh, it does make a fair amount of sense from a subliminal perspective. Uh, in my experience, there's so much of this that is driven by technologies outside of the automotive or outside of the, uh, the watch world. A lot of it is from the automotive world. Uh, on top of that, you have uh, you know innovations from aerospace. You have innovations from technology in general, uh, be it uh, things like carbon composites being used in in race cars to high performance ceramics being used in spacecraft. Uh, and people wanting a piece of that on their wrist. Uh, But I think there's such a proliferation at this point. Uh, There are so many different types of advanced materials that are all, to be frank, also competing to be the most expensive and exotic material that it can become bewildering for the average consumer. Look, watch brands take advantage of consumer ignorance routinely, which is a shame, but they do. And this happens everywhere. And I think that's what's going on. You know, most consumers are like, wait a minute, there's more than one kind of steel? Like, there's a few, but for the most part, steel is steel. But with these materials, like you said, they're still unknown to many consumers, i.e. they're exotic. They will not be exotic forever. They will become mainstream and consumers will know that's a cheap carbon. Oh, that's the real fancy stuff, right? Mm-hmm. When Audemars Piguet came out with forged carbon. And again, they actually made it in-house. You can just make your own forged carbon. Um, no one else was doing it. And they were charging like, you know, I don't know, like $20,000, $30,000 for one of these forged carbon uh, Royal Oak offshores. Then all of a sudden, a couple of years later, you have watches that are down to $1,000 with cases entirely made out of what is, they call forged carbon. And it, it is, it's produced sort of the same way. It's not from the Audemars Piguet factory, but the cost went down. Certain types of materials, like maybe those exotic ones for uh, the reshared meal cases, maybe those will never be available for anything under, you know, uh, a $50,000 watch. Therefore, consumers will be like, okay, that one is the one that really has the luxury prestige. So right now, 
you're seeing this sort of fluctuation in the market where consumer attention um, and marketing and availability and economics are all mixing together and eventually things will settle. But right now it's a lot of experimentation and yeah, there's a lot of BS going on. That's that's pretty much where I land with it. I think there will be certain ones of these that will become more commonplace. There will be certain ones of these that like the Aquastar might be evolutionary dead ends. Uh, (laughs) And I I would be willing to bet dollars to donuts that there will be a, a collector market for those Decades down the line. And I love there's a watch that I completely don't get, but there's someone else out there that I'd be totally good friends with who totally gets it. And we could just agree to disagree on that because there's some other watch that we both agree is amazing. Oh, yeah. But, you know, someone down the line 40 years from now is going to find, start just collecting this specific ceramic compound that was used for a few years in the late 2010s by a couple of brands. And he's going to, you know, fall across like a Richard meal for way too cheap on watch you seek. And that's going to be his dream. And I say to you, future collector, Godspeed, more power to you. So let's just sort of finish up talking about the Alpine Eagle XL chronograph. These are not inexpensive watches, you know, as, as David. No, they're a hair under 20 grand. Yeah. And so what David said was interesting is the $7,000 premium in steel for the three hand of the chronograph. You get a chronograph and you get three millimeters extra case size. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a hell of a premium. It you is. Know, this is, you know, this is kind of baller watch status here. And, and you know, Hublot and the Big Bang are, are, you know, the classic Big Bang costs a little bit le- less. Um, this is, a, this is a, within the, the, the vicinity of the, the, the current Big Bang Unicos. I, you know, I think that it's interesting that Chopard is is actively attacking the segment. They have a very strong product, but Hublot is years ahead of them in marketing, like years ahead of them. You know, yeah, does in Chopard terms of their market the patience placement. to wait and, and to do the effort and to build the market. Uh, it's interesting because they are very similar watches, but I feel like the Big Bang Unico and the Chopard Alpine Eagle XL Chrono have two very different buyers. Uh, you know, I, I myself, I'm not so sure. I, I don't know. It, me personally, I'm not the type of person that would ever buy a Hublot. Uh, they're just not my cup of tea. Again, if they are, more power to you for you. You look so uh, good in a Hublot, Sean. Oh, I got skinny little chicken wrists. That wouldn't work on me. That's but, your concern? No. Eh. Either way, uh, the, Alp, uh, the Alpine Eagle speaks to me far more than Hublot does. Oh, it just feels great. like a more refined dressy classy it it's definitely more classy it's it doesn't have sort of the the more overt architectural industrial tones but it's all in there subtly you know the big bang bezel screws the alpine eagle bezel screws look at oh, the yeah. case shape look at, you know look at the look at the, the look again it comes back to that the segment doesn't have a name but you know when you're looking at it the not a Royal Oak, but going after the market segment of the Royal Oak segment. I mean, this is the sort of luxury lifestyle sports watch that, you know, ha- that is, is, is basically a, a piece of jewelry. It's a piece of jewelry on the wrist. And for me, those make some of the best watches. No, so I agree. $19,200 in steel. Uh, they do not have an all gold version, though I'm sure that's coming. 26,802 tone. Look, if you could afford it, it's a it's a great it's a great watch. Oh, yeah. It really is. That dial is beautiful. Side, but nice watch. I think it'll age better. 
and then a lot of the competition out there. Um, and, you know, and other, other companies like Listen Ardan and Hublot and, of course, Audemars Piguet and, you know, Patek Philippe. There's them and many others that have interest in this field right now, which, which is a very crowded field right now. So we oh, yeah. have to wait five or maybe even six years before we see what has the staying power. And the time will come and we'll, we'll see what are the winners and what are the losers out there. You know, and if there's one thing that is a constant in everything, it's change. You know, what is currently the icon may not always be the icon. Right. Okay. Sean, thank you so much for joining me to help me talk about the news on this episode. Thank you for having me on. Yes, absolutely. You'll have to come back with more news. I wonder. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Everyone, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?